Hi, welcome to a bonus episode of Engaging the Ego, exploring US foreign policy in Southeast Asia. I'm Kevin, an Associate Research Fellow with the US program at RSIS, and today we'll be turning our attention towards Huawei and its footprint in Latin America. While this may seem distant from our usual geographic focus, the themes and issues raised are helpful for us to understand Huawei's operations in Southeast Asia as well. Our speaker for today is Jin Zulitzeng, Associate Professor of Politics and International Relations at Florida International University, while the discussant is Xie Gong, Assistant Professor in the China Program at RSIS. The moderator is my colleague, Adrian Ang, a Research Fellow and Coordinator of the US Program at RSIS. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Welcome to the RSIS Green School webinar, Threatening National Security or Bridging the Digital Divide, a case study of Huawei's expansion in Brazil. Good morning and good evening, everyone. Uh, thank you, uh, Agent, for your kind introduction. I also want to thank RSIS and the Green School for inviting me to be a speaker. And I truly honored to have this opportunity to share with you some of the preliminary findings of my research. And I also want to take this opportunity to thank George Gordon Institute for Public Policy at FIU and Rosenberg Institute for East Asian Studies at Suffolk University, Boston for the generous finding, uh, funding which enabled me to conduct fieldwork in Brazil and extensive research for this project. So today, the title of my presentation is Threatening National Security or Bridging the Digital Divide, a case study of Huawei's expansion in Brazil. The rise and speed of China's technological advancements in recent years have raised concerns in Washington over the implications for America's dominance in technology and its overall competitiveness. One conspicuous example is the rise of Huawei. Over the three decades, Huawei has grown from a small reseller of low-end phone equipment to the world's top provider of telecom equipment with $92 billion in revenue and 207,000 employees in 2022. It has a leading position in smartphones, chip design, telecommunication equipment, 5G, AI, smart cities, and cloud computing. So as China's digital silk load expands globally, the U.S. government is increasingly worrying that the gears from the Chinese telecom firms will provide instruments for the Chinese government to collect data and to spy. So in 2018, the U.S. led a global campaign to remove Huawei from the telecom network and bar the firm from building the 5G networks around the world. And this is on top of the chip ban and also the rejection of the license to Google's operating system. According to an article in New York Times, American officials have tried to pressure, scold, and increasingly threaten other nations that are considering using Huawei in building 5G wireless network. But so far, there has been limited success among its close allies. Only a few Western countries joined the United States to ban Huawei. 
But the global south, the majority of the global south countries increasingly are using Huawei, and Huawei was able to pride itself to serve 3 billion people in over 170 countries. In many countries in Latin America, Huawei has been a key telecom equipment provider. Not a single Latin American country has banned or implemented any sort of restriction on Huawei. So my research questions are, why didn't Latin American countries follow the United States to the lead to ban Huawei? And I'm going to use a case study of Huawei's expansion in Brazil to address this question. And this case is especially puzzling because at that time, Brazil's president, Bolsonaro, was very anti-China and he opposed Huawei on many occasions, public occasions. And in 2020, Brazil was searching for a legal option to ban Huawei. But a few months later, in January 2021, Bolsonaro government allowed Huawei in Brazil's 5G network. So why was this unexpected U10? And how can we explain the policy change during that time? So I'm going to use process tracing, and my my data is based on 42 semi-structured interviews with Brazilian government officials, local professionals in Brazil, and Chinese executives. And I also draw upon the secondary data from newspaper articles and government policies and statistical yearbooks. In my paper, I adopt the definition uh, of economic sanctions of Ascari. The way she defines is restriction placed by the sender on commercial activities with the intent to inflict economic losses on others. And in Huawei's case, the United States has been trying to deny key components and international markets to this tech giant. But the bulk of the research on economic sanctions focus on effectiveness of sanctions as an instrument of foreign policy. Very often, the scholars focus on this dyad relationship, the sender's state versus the target state. But as we know that the effective of sanctions or the success of sanctions very much depends on the international cooperation from other countries. So this is not a bilateral relations. Instead, it's a multilateral sanctions and requires the joint actions of third countries. And in recent years, there's a growing body of literature on international cooperation from third parties. And some scholars try to understand and analyze why countries cooperate while others become sanctions busters. Lisa Martin published a, a very influential book, Coerced Cooperation. So according to her, the center state uh, has to find some way of coercing the other states into joint act sanctions through persuasion, threats, and the promises, and the need to use credible commitments. And she also finds that international institutions have been playing a very important role to help center states to gain international cooperation. Some other scholars also look at the political motivations, for example, the black lines that appear to aid 
allied target states or to pursue great power prerogatives. The very obvious example is Soviet Union's assistance to Cuba. Uh, but early, uh, and some other scholars also find out that uh, commercial motivation is of very important. For example, the trade by Canada and Mexico with Cuba after the collapse of the former Soviet Union. So in early research that he singled out some important predictors of sanctions busting among third parties, the third party's GDP trade openness and is having a strong pre-existing commercial relationship with the target. But this group of the studies uh, only uh, focus on look at this issue from either realist perspective, liberal perspective, or neoliberal institutionalist perspective, while not examining a very important aspect, persuasion, not the sanctions rationales. So in Huawei's case, the United States imposed the sanctions on Huawei because they perceived Huawei as a national security threat. So this rationale or the causal story, how is it perceived by others? I think we need a constructive perspective to look at the dynamics in Brazil. So uh, the causal narratives of sanctions endorsed, whether it's endorsed by a third party state and how this threat was perceived by a third party state. Wu Zhang and his co-authors correctly point out, instead of assuming a direct correlation between threat and threat perception, it's more profitable or beneficial for scholars to explore the social processes by which particular issues come to be understood as existential threats. So Buzan and his co-authors point out three general conditions for successful securitization. The first one is the use of appropriate sectoral security language and grammar. And the second one is a leverage of authority. The third one is a resonance with audience preconception. This sanctions rationale is very important because if a third party state fails to securitize the issue, in Huawei's case, then it becomes more difficult for the center state to convince the third party state to, uh, for joint actions, or there's a higher likelihood for the third country to engage in sanction busting behaviors. So in my, uh, I come up with a model to try to capture these complicated dynamics or interactions, not only between the sender state and the target, but also the third party state, how it plays a role, how it process this sanction narrative. And as you can see, the U.S. exert intense pressure on Brazil. Uh, in this case, Huawei was a target firm, and in the body of sanction literature, very few studies analyze firm as a target. Very often, the unit of analysis is the state. So target state versus the center state. But in this case, China is obviously a very important actor here because it backs Huawei and it could retaliate against some countries which ban Huawei. And I would like to come up with three C arguments. So the causal narrative, cause and uh, contingency. The first one is causal narrative, whether the, the degree of the third party's susceptibility to the causal narrative of sanctions by the central state will play a very important role in deciding whether the third 
party state will cooperate or evade the sanction. So in the case of Brazil, Bolsonaro obviously was the securitizer. He tries to follow the footsteps of the United States or Trump to label Huawei as a security threat. But he has very weak authority, as I'm going to explain later. And there's a lack of resonance with audience perception in Brazil. So eventually, he failed to securitize China's technology. And the second important factor is cost. So the cost of implementing sanctions incurred by the third party state. And the cost is not just the trade that how much would be lost if the third country impose sanction on the target state. I break it down into four different aspects of the cost. The first one is high replacement cost of equipment in Brazil's existing 3G and 4G networks. And the second is higher procurement cost of 5G. And the third one is potential cost of offending China as biggest trading partner since 2009. And the fourth one is potential cost due to the lack of competition in the telecom sector. My hypothesis is that if the cost is higher, overall cost is higher, then it's more likely the third party country choose not to cooperate with United States to impose sanctions. And the third factor is contingency. So this is a factor that has been understudied by scholars and uh, almost no scholar in the sanction literature analyzes how it plays a role in the effectiveness of sanctions. So in this case, in Brazil's case, China's vaccine diplomacy served as a catalyst to help Brazil to finally make the decision to let keep Huawei in instead of keep uh, let Huawei out. And there are a few contributions of my study. The first one is to, by building on insights from the sanction literature and the studies on securitization, my study provides a theoretical framework to understand why a third party state does not cooperate with a center state to impose sanctions on a single firm. This has been an understudied field in the sanctions literature. The second one is to highlight the importance of causal narratives, the lack of perception congruence between a central state and a third party state reduce the probability of cooperation. And the third one, my research would contribute to our, our understanding of cost benefits calculus of a third party state is not only trade dependence. Another contribution is to shed light on the important role played by contingency. My study also shows how a third party state responds and adapts to the opportunities and the constraints posed by sanctions. Some seemingly weaker states also have considerable scope for agency. And the target firms and states very often has been not ignored or not carefully analyzed by sanctions scholars that they can also use side payments, threats, and promises to create a sanction busters. So to just follow the title of Lisa Martin's book, Coercive Cooperation, can be applied not only to the center state, but also can be applied to the target state and firms. Now the story comes to our case study, Huawei's development expansion in Brazil. 
As you know, Trump, during the state visit to White House in March 2019, Bolsonaro exchanged soccer jersey from the national teams with Trump. They clearly see eye to eye to each, uh, with each other. Bolsonaro is a former military captain, and he rode to the presidency on anti-establishment campaign slogans, and he is very anti-China politician. So he very often say that China is not buying in Brazil, it's buying Brazil. And he also he openly opposed Huawei on the ground that could be the tools of the Chinese government to carry out espionage or spy on the government. So during that meeting in 2019, Trump asked Bolsonaro to ban Huawei in Brazil. This information was confirmed by Bolsonaro's vice president later. Trump, in exchange, would support Brazil's efforts to join OECD and would designate Brazil as a major non-NATO ally. So this is an upgrade of the status of Brazil and would give Brazil preferential access to the purchase of the military weaponry and the technology. And Brazil was also under intense pressures from the United States to ban Huawei. During a visit to Brazil in 2020, then under secretary called Huawei an industrial pariah that needed to be locked out of 5G network. And he also called the Huawei as a backbone of the CCP surveillance state. And he argued that the free nations needed to agree to coalesce around a clean network that exclude Huawei because our chain of security is only as strong as its weakest link. Besides the threats and also the payments, American politicians or officials also made promises. In December 2020, the U.S. government officials offered Brazilian telecommunication firms finance to encourage them to buy from Western providers such as Nokia and Ericsson. And in 2021, during the meeting with Brazil's communication minister, Jake Sullivan, he discussed building 5G networks in Brazil using the U.S. open RAN technologies. So he again offered Brazil the chance to become a NATO global partner in exchange for removing Huawei from its 5G network. And in another case, uh, the National Security Council senior director warned Brazil that Huawei was facing major challenges to its semiconductor supply chain and that would leave international customers like Brazil high and dry. However, Brazil made no promises about whether it would use products from Huawei. Bolsonaro was trying to follow the footsteps of Trump. So in 2020, November 2020, Brazil joined the U.S.-led Clean Network. And in December 2020, he was looking for legal options to ban Huawei, but met fierce resistance from his government, including his vice president. And at that time, his approval rate was very low, 37%, lower than any of his predecessors at a similar stage since full democracy returned in Brazil in 1989. So I want to first examine the variable or the factor of causal narrative and whether this was well received 
by Brazilian audience, but it turns out it was a hard sell in Brazil. First, because of the lack of the evidence. During my interview with a high-level government official in Anatel, the telecommunication regulation agency, he told me that he was pressured by an American official to ban Huawei because of the national security threat. So the Brazilian official asked him to show me the evidence of Huawei's wrongdoings. And the American official told him, it's classified information. I cannot share it with you. So the Brazilian official replied, we will take measures if we find problems with Huawei. And in a study conducted by Pacifio Dacero, he interviewed seven telecommunication professionals worked for Huawei in Latin America, in different Latin American countries. And even though most of these professionals did not have a favorable impression working for Huawei, but they confirmed that there's no evidence of hardware security breaches by Huawei, such as data leaks, backdoors, or sabotage. And a second reason for this hard sell of the security threat narrative was the track records. According to a China Chinese executive in Brazil, that Huawei had been operating in Brazil for over 20 years. If Huawei wanted to spy on Brazil, they have done that any time during the past 20 years. Why do they need to wait until Brazil builds 5G networks? So Bolsonaro, even though he was trying very hard to securitize China's technology, but he, this narrative did not resonate with the local audience. For example, one interviewee told me, do you want to be spied by the United States or China? Without homegrown technology, there's always a risk of being spied. The Snowden revelation already showed that the U.S. spied on our president, Dilma Rousseff's phone. To many Brazilian policymakers in the tech sector, the national security risk is difficult to mitigate in the absence of homegrown technologies that are equally vulnerable to data collection and the threat of choke points, whether they choose Huawei, China's Huawei, Finland's Nokia, or Sweden's Ericsson. And one diplomat told me, we don't want to be swallowed by the United States. Multipolarity is good for us. We have our own independent foreign policy that works the best for our interests. When this threat narrative was imposed, it begs the question of national sovereignty that feels that the need to uphold the principle of autonomy and independence. And to some scholars, Brazilian scholars, that China is a solution, not a problem. To sum up, Bolsonaro's weak authority and opposition from within the government, and also the lack of resonance with audience preconceptions of threats, uh, leads to the unsuccessful securitization of Huawei in Brazil. The second major variable or factor in my study is the cost. So there's four different costs of banning Huawei that would be incurred by Brazil. The first one is high replacement cost of equipment in Brazil's existing 3G and 4G networks. And according to some data that the biggest four, the top four providers, internet service providers like Vivo, Claro, Team, Oi, they have 
in within the existing network from 45% to 65% of the equipment was from Huawei. So if you they want to implement a similar program, rip and replace program that United States has been implementing, then it would cost billions of dollars to remove Huawei equipment from the existing networks. And just to give you some idea about how costly, United States, the FCC set aside $1.9 billion to reimburse the internet service providers to rip and replace Huawei equipment. But this cost very soon ballooned to over $5 billion. So for some small internet service providers, they can only have less than half of the cost reimbursed by FCC. And the second aspect of the cost is higher procurement cost of 5G. The price, prices of Huawei's equipment is by average 30% lower than its competitor. And that's why Brazil's vice president, that he openly said that if Huawei cannot provide the 5G equipment, the cost will be a lot higher and these costs will be transferred to consumers. Based on my research and also the research of some other scholars, Huawei's advantage, competitive advantage, is more than low cost. So very often we would say, oh, why countries choose Huawei? Because they have very low cost products and good quality. But actually Huawei has advantage in financing and the customer-oriented services. One Anatel official told me that Huawei even offer the product, the equipment to the customers free, that you could use those products for the time being without making any payments, and they will pay Huawei until they start to make profit. So this was very attractive to those small internet service providers. And in another case that Huawei could, if there's any problems with the equipment or the maintenance issues, Huawei could get it done within days. And Nokia, in comparison, Nokia or Ericsson would take months. So Huawei has competitive advantage, not only in low cost, but also financing and custom oriented services. And the third cost is potential cost of offending China, its biggest trading partner since 2009. One interviewee put it in an exaggerated way that Brazil would not be able to survive without China because China is such an important trading partner of Brazil. I was also informed by another Brazilian scholar that Brazil's government is very fragmented during Bolsonaro's administration. It can be characterized with five Bs, conveniently summed up with five B. The first one is bullies, the military representatives in, in a government. The second one is Bible, representing conservative religious groups. The third one, of course, is Bolsonaro and his support those are ideologically driven groups following Trumpism. And the fourth one is boys. This is Portuguese, generally referred to cattle, the agribusiness, which uh, they are very more, uh, more pragmatic. And the last one is Boris Ball. I hope I pronounced it correctly. So this uh, refers to the financial sector, more pragmatic sector. So all these different interest groups, they have different interests. And as we can see that Brazil's trade with China 
from 2015 to 2022, Brazil had a very nice surplus uh, from trading with China. As a comparison, that Brazil's trading with United States from 2016 to 2021, every single year, Brazil had a deficit. So the importance is obvious. China enables the trading with China enable Brazil to gain handsome surplus and to earn a foreign exchange. And very brief discussion of Brazil's economic recession from the 2011 that Brazil's economy declined sharply. And in 2011, it was almost $2.6 trillion the GDP. But in 2020, it dropped to $1.6 trillion. So according to some scholars, that Brazil was facing a stagnation worse than the 1980s. And the desperately or urgently need investment in digital infrastructure, which is essential for them to leapfrog into a highly coveted digital economy. So in other words, the need for deferment, the priority of deferment uh, trumps the concern of the national security. And another surprising turn of the story is Brazil play its own game. So free competition is a key. The potential cost uh, due to the lack of competition in the telecom sector. According to the, a, a high-level official in Anatel, he told me that we keep Huawei, Nokia, and Ericsson in our market and let them compete against each other. We don't want to let any of them feel comfortable. We want free competition. That's good for our consumers. The vice president of Brazil at that time also said that Brazil can't miss out on a 5G opportunity and the government will not interfere with Huawei's activities as long as the firm creates local jobs and plays by its rules. So to them, national security is not a dominant concern, but the risk of overly reliant on a single provider, equipment provider, was the risk. They try to avoid monopoly, monopoly by Huawei, or the dominance by two Ericsson or Nokia. So they want to keep as many firms in the field as possible. But as you know, it's almost natural monopoly that the top three providers of telecom equipment, 5G telecom equipment, are the top three. So the urgent need to bridge the digital gap was a priority for Brazil. And the data shows that 67% of the lack households are connected in urban areas with fixed broadband access. But in rural areas, this number is very, very low, uh, only 23%. And the third factor in my analysis is contingency. We never expect that 2020 would be hit by the pandemic. But this provided a unique opportunity for China. But uh, I would also argue that this could be an opportunity for the United States as well. But U.S. did not seize that opportunity to provide what urgently needed by Brazil at that time vaccine. So Brazil's economy gone into recession since 2014. And in 2020, 19 million people got hungry compared to 10 million in 2018, just two years ago. And 170 million people, or 55% of Brazil's population, faced food insecurity in 2020. 
versus 85 million in 2018. So Bolsonaro, uh, again, the chump in the tropics, he was a coronavirus denier and dismissed COVID-19 as little flu. I think to our audience, this is a very familiar narrative from Trump and real against the lockdowns. But he changed his attitude after the number of the deaths that really shocked the whole nation, that Brazil's death from the virus was over 270,000. It had the second highest toll, uh, death toll in the world after the United States. So in March 2021, uh, Bolsonaro signed into law three new measures designed to speed up the purchase of vaccines. And his politician son, Eduardo Bolsonaro, posts on the social media, the vaccine is our weapon. And at that time, as you know, we all experienced that period that on the early stage of the COVID uh, vaccine was very, very difficult commodity to come by. So China seized the opportunity to play this vaccine diplomacy. And in December 2020, even though Brazil, Bolsonaro's administration was looking for legal options to ban Huawei, but in January, when China confirmed the export uh, to Brazil of inputs for the manufacture of vaccine in the next few days, the Brazilian government, Bolsonaro, swiftly changed the direction, changed his policy to allow Huawei in 5G auction. Some scholars just use piece of information to explain why Brazil did not ban Huawei. It was because of China's vaccine diplomacy. And as you can see from my presentation, that this story is more complicated. Vaccine, I would argue, is only accelerated the decision-making process to help Bolsonaro government to make the decision to keep Huawei in. But Brazil is also very smart to, to come up with a compromise that the plans to build two 5G networks, one private 5G network for government agencies without Huawei equipment and a public 5G network for non-government agencies with Huawei equipment. The private 5G network is very small, much smaller, so it does not affect Huawei's market share in Brazil. And according to some scholars and government officials, they were skeptical. They think it's insane for them to build two separate 5G networks, and it will be technically very difficult to keep them separate. But for the time being, it was a very satisfactory political compromise acceptable to both China and the United States. Uh, Huawei did not sit idle either. So they had the strategy to work closely with local government, the state of Sao Paulo, they invest $800 million in the construction of the manufacturing plant for 5G equipment and build the 5G innovation center, a smart factory, and they also teamed up with Team Brazil to build 5G city. More importantly, uh, maybe in this story, Huawei hired a political heavyweight, the former Brazilian president, Michel Temer, as an advisor in early 2021. So Temer has influence over Bolsonaro, and he appointed the president of Anatel, the telecommunication regulation agency. So he has his network, will, uh, tends out to be very valuable for Huawei. To sum up 
my story, I try to come up with a theory to explain sanctions busters. And there are three C's. First is causal narratives, the second cost, and the third one is contingency. And the America's causal narratives, security threat narrative of Huawei did not resonate well with many Brazilians. So there was low interest in cooperating with the United States in imposing sanctions on Huawei. And the four different costs, that the overall very high cost of implementing sanctions also pushed Brazil to make a decision of keeping Huawei in its 5G network. And the last one is contingency that acted, gave China an opportunity to make a side payments and helped Huawei to strengthen its hold or its position in the Brazilian market. Rulers made a state visit to China, and the second day after he landed, the first company he visited was Huawei in Shanghai. And he made the public statement that no one will prohibit Brazil from improving its relationship with China. And he said his Huawei visit was a demonstration that we want to tell the world we don't have prejudices in our relations with the Chinese. Thank you. That's my presentation. Thank you so much, Julie, for a very interesting and, and fascinating presentation. I think just from your from your presentation, you know, our audience can see that in Asia that the countries face very similar pressures, shall we say, from great power to competition with, with regard to Huawei and 5G networks. So now let me to my colleague and friend, Professor Gong, to begin the discussion. Over to you, Xie. Thank you very much, Adrian, for inviting me to this webinar and had the chance to enjoy Dr. Zen's uh, interesting work. Dr. Zen studies a million-dollar question, as Adrian has pointed out. It has been backed by many third-party countries in this growing and growing U.S. tech and strategy competition. And we do see that you know, for years, the United States has leveled waves of sanctions and coercion on Chinese firms. And with one particular strategic goal is to squeeze China's fledgling semiconductor industry. With all these growing tensions, this situation actually has placed many other countries, including Brazil, in this very strategically difficult position, you know, in terms of choosing sides and also in terms of you know, how to deal with the two. I have to confess that I'm not an expert on Latin American foreign policy, nor I can claim myself as a knowledgeable person on Brazil's economic foreign policy. But I do share with Julie in the sense that the majority of third-party countries, in particular Southeast Asia, which I am more specialized in, that they try to avoid choosing sides and they are learning how to balance among the two. And Brazil, I found is a very interesting case. First of all, it's is that it is one of the leaders in the global south, and it is forerunner of BRICS, as well as you know the National Development Bank, although under China leadership, and has actually has also lots to compete with the United States in the Western Hemisphere, despite the two countries share abundant interest in security, ideology, and others. So, I find you know using Brazil as case study is interesting, also helpful in terms of assisting us understanding why Brazil did not follow the hegemon in sanctioning Huawei, despite Bolsonaro administration has attempted to do so. 
So Dr. Zhe was quite right in pointing out that the weakness you know, in the literature where factors like trade dependence cannot explain the country's behavior. And she innovatively highlighted the, this often neglected third parties' securitization efforts in framing the potential security interests and using the rhetorics, the words and ideas to influence and justify the alliance uh, behavior with the hegemon. I understand it's a preliminary work, and I hope you can clarify some of the questions that I have in my mind. In your framework, you highlighted the importance of this causal narrative, and it looks to me that you made the conclusion the lack of perception congruence reduced the cooperation likelihood. So my question, I mean, I understand where you're coming from, but my question to you is, how do we know exactly it is the narrative that leads to the outcome? I feel there's a missing link between the language and the policymaking choice. Let's say if we put this causal mechanism in your case study context, it looks like Bolsonaro's securitization efforts did not really work out at the first place. And as you, your research pointed out, you know, Brazil looked for legal options to ban Huawei from 5G, but met with fierce resistance from the government. This fact seems to suggest that Bolsonaro's securitization never worked. So my question, and I guess the audience may also raise the same question, is perhaps Brazil never really tried to pick side and its foreign economic foreign policy is actually quite stable despite these hiccups by this right-wing and populist leadership. So perhaps you can give us some general background on the consistency and inconsistency of Brazil's economic foreign policy. When you brought up the current administration, Luna, I feel there's lots of consistency in his administration because he's well-known as pragmatist. And he's that kind of leadership that really thinks much bigger, advocating for integration, that is why he took the adventure to Japan, to Europe, to study the integration, and he chose to open up the economy. So I wonder, you know, to what extent really this this particular leadership style of Bolsonaro can really represent Brazil's foreign economic policy, right? Not to mention Brazil as a global South country and an observer of the movement of long-aligned countries. I think it has historically... It has reservations on unilateral sanctions because used as a colonized country, the sentiment towards sanctions, I think, was quite shared. Back to the question, I mean, essentially is to what extent the narratives of securitization efforts are really important in dictating the whole foreign policy making. And following that, you mentioned about the cost. Like Brazil find it very costly to abandon uh, Chinese technology because it has been already heavily reliant on the network equipment from Huawei. But also, I mean, it looks like they had little limited choice because due to their, you know, due to their lack of infrastructure, you know, lack of sufficient human like talents, the still not well developed regulatory framework, it's difficult to attract the U.S. line chip makers to set up the plan in Brazil. So I guess this cost-benefit calculation, it looks to me that explains much more convincingly to a certain extent. On the other hand, China has been in Brazil for, for decades as well. Uh, it also has the history of distilling goodwill through the economy investments, and not just through the tech corporation, but also through the infrastructure 
investments. So why say no to China when there's no explicit committee investments from the U.S. allied chip makers? And the second point on the research is, again, you know, to what extent narratives are determinative compared to the material promises. The U.S., Europe have committed themselves, have become committed in subsidies and tax breaks to attract foundry operators to build the fabs in their own country. So what can Brazil offer if it doesn't really improve the things that I mentioned, you know, like infrastructure, which at this point, China is like the very, very attractive partner for them, right? And the third point I want to highlight is the interesting domestic variable you brought up, where you try to look at the individual, like political elite, securitization efforts, how the narratives impact the perception. Again, as I say, people will not be surprised to see Bolsonaro as a far-right and populist. He advocated closer relations with the U.S., so it's not surprising to see himself admiring Trump, also admiring, maybe you know, not admiring, but supporting Trump's Huawei sanctions. But I wonder to what extent Brazil really made commitments to those clean network initiatives by Trump. I don't really see Biden administration abandon that, although you know Biden administration rebranded in a much more gentle and multilateral way. So could you explain a bit more? about the follow-ups and, and the updates on Brazil's current government, how they perceive this clean network, to what extent the ideology, in the sense that differentiating autocracy from the free world, that really make a difference in Brazil's decisions, either accepting Huawei or you know uh, trying to abandon Huawei. I have some suggestions. Is the question, you know, to what extent the securitization efforts are really successful here in the case, if we can have a comparison case on both domestic variables, for instance, by examining Bolsonaro and Luna's securitization narratives or desecretization narratives, then we can have a much clearer understanding of to see, uh, hey, the, the securitization really stand out and we need to pay attention to this neglected variable. Also, my preliminary takeaways from your excellent research. So those are just my suggestions. I benefit quite a lot by listening to this uh, fascinating presentation. I really admire your work. And I think your uh, Julie's work and her framework can help us understand other countries' foreign policy choices too. Julie conceptualized it in a very organized and interesting way that I feel there's a huge potential for publications as her excellent publication records have demonstrated. So thanks again, Julie. Uh, I really enjoyed listening to your research. Uh, over to you, Adrian. Thank you, Chair. So I will hand it back to Julie if, if she has any reply for the comments that she has made. Thank you, Professor Gong, for your encouraging words and for your insightful observations and also the suggestions, the questions. Let me try to tackle some of them. I'm still at a very early stage of this research, so some will be further explored, but let me address your question one by one. The first one is the narrative that whether the securitization really played a role in or how deterministic it is that this narrative to leads to the outcome. I would argue that narrative is very important because if Brazilian public, not only the government, but also the public, that there would 
come to a consensus uh, to recognize China's technology posed as a threat to national security, then they are more willing to forego some economic benefits of trading with China or using Huawei's cheaper, relatively cheaper products. So the transaction costs for the United States to impose sanctions will be much lower. They do not need to convince them that to use the side payments or threats because they are willingly that join the United States in imposing sanctions. But how do I know this is an important factor to lead to the outcome? I think your suggestion of the comparative study is very important, very good way to address this issue because we can look at the U.S. How United States, even though AT&T and Verizon during meetings with the U.S. government official that. Uh, voice the concerns are uh, to say, oh, we can maybe keep Huawei in as a test, as an experiment, and we can know how to use those. Te- we can get the source code, and the cost will be lower. But that was vetoed by the U.S. government official, and because the dominant narrative was this is a security threat. And the tie between Ren Zhengfei, the founder of Huawei, with the military, and the tie between Huawei and the Chinese government, and also the China's intelligence law passed in 2017, obligates any Chinese companies to comply with the Chinese government's request to give the access to the data or to the information. So that seems to be a very, in the United States at least, was a convincing argument that was accepted. That resonated with the fear of the public, of the government officials that we can almost like a red scare that are willing to pay higher price to keep the network clean. Also in Australia, there's an article, a very good article in JCC Journal of Contemporary China. To analyze how Australian government securitized China influence. Now, even though China influence has been in Australia, the policy making or some of the、uh, lobby or some of the corruption cases, but it did not actually surface to become very important agenda. But some policy entrepreneurs that seize that opportunity. Not to securitize it, that they use the language and grammar of security, and also build a coalition not only within the government but also with the media, the scholars, or of a sudden that the whole discourse of China of the Chinese government was the very malicious Chinese influence, and that will threaten not only the national security but also the culture and the very identity of Australia. So that's why the were even willing to suffer the retaliation from China and to cut some ties with China, that to side with the United States to keep Huawei out of Australia. In my revision of the paper, I will add some of these comparative study in the paper to further strengthen my argument that this securitization narrative is very important. It's a starting point of how you perceive Huawei and the policy making process. So the second one, the cost benefits calculus. I agree with you that China, as some scholars said, that China is a solution. It's not a problem. That there are so few options for a country like Brazil. 
that they have such huge infrastructure deficit, the digital divide, and they need some countries or investors to come in to invest. And the United States did not make credible commitment that to provide those commodities or products or services that they need. So China becomes an obvious option that they have to rely on. And as to the domestic elite, I agree with you that Bolsonaro maybe is a hiccup that <laughs> my colleague, Dr. Parada, maybe have more to say about domestic politics in Brazil. But I think during Bolsonaro's administration, why this case is so interesting or puzzling is that we have a president in Brazil who's so anti-China, opposing Huawei and a huge fan of Trump that wants to emulate every policy Trump made in United States, including calling COVID-19 a little flu. So why during that time Brazil failed to join the United States to ban Huawei? So I, I think that shows how important that not only political elites, but also the whole government, that different factions, the fight infighting in the government, for example, the agribusiness sector, that they have strong vested interests in maintaining stable trade relations with China. Because 70%, 70% of the soybeans export from Brazil went to China. So if the ban Huawei, possibly Chinese government could retaliate by maybe ban the imports of soybeans from Brazil. That would be devastating to the agribusiness sector. Brazilian scholar told me that the Brazilian agribusiness and the financial sectors that the representatives send a very clear message to Bolsonaro that they do not want to mess up with China. They want to maintain good relationship with China. That's why even though we see uh, the rhetoric of Brazil President Bolsonaro was very anti-China, very inflammatory, but he's also practical. At the practical level that a trade relation maintained stable with China during his administration, even though investment suffered that the previous year before he came to office, if I remember correctly, it was about $10 billion investment from China to Brazil, but the following year, 2019, it was about $2 billion. So it was a big job. Yeah, the clean network, the current administration attitudes to this issue, I think Bolsonaro, after he lost the re-election, Lula came to power. He's a more pragmatic left-wing president. So his foreign policy is more geared towards building allies with China, with other developing countries, instead of warming up with the United States. But Bolsonaro was... Uh, uh, during his administration, there was a break, a very obvious break from the previous leftist government that to try to build strong ties with the United States. Lula kind of shifted the gears that to focus more on development and relationship with China, with other developing countries. So that's why there's a BRICS plus uh, the enlargement of the BRICS group. He even put forth some very bold ideas that we do not need to rely on U.S. dollar for trade. And a, a few months ago, Brazil and China already conducted trade in their own currencies. This is not just rhetoric that putting it into effect. Thank you, Xie. Thank you.
Julie, we have a few questions from the audience. So, Julie, the, the, the first question really is about asking you to expand on Brazil's responses in terms of 5G telecom equipment, right? So the question is, if Brazilian stakeholders only deem homegrown technologies to be secure, and, and since they are, are not available, is there any policy interest in indigenous technology development? But here, it's asking about whether there is interest in taking advantage of great power competition to seek tech transfer from either diversified foreign suppliers or requiring manufacturers like Huawei or other foreign firms to partner with domestic firms and train local employees and basically developing homegrown technology. So this really is a, about right, the, the agency of, of third parties in, in developing their own technologies. And the second question is about whether the change in administration from Trump to the Biden administration in, in 2021 onwards really affects Bolsonaro's attitudes towards sanctions against Huawei. So the, the, the question asks that, right, so whether Bolsonaro's agreement with Trump on Huawei really was like trying to curry flavor with, with the Trump administration and that with Biden winning office in, in the 2020 election, there was no further incentive for Bolsonaro to follow up through with sanctions against Huawei. Thank you for your questions. And uh, let me answer the second question first. Uh, so this has been almost conventional wisdom that in the newspaper, when they explain why Brazil had such a sudden U10, uh, the New York Times would explain that it was because of the low cost of Huawei's equipment. Trump lost in the re-election. So with Trump already left the office, so this, as you put it, no incentive for Bolsonaro to continue uh, to cozy up with the United States. And he was actually the last one to send a congratulatory notes to Biden. But I would argue possibly that played a role, but it's not decisive. Maybe on the surface, the factor that Trump lost the re-election and China's vaccine diplomacy, the timing works making one really want to draw these causal relations. Maybe there's some correlation. I would not deny any effect of these two events, but I would not say that decisive because that would simplify the whole issue. As my presentation shows that the story is more complicated and uh, the cost is not only just Huawei, how much Huawei's equipment costs, but also the bigger cost of offending China, the relationship with China, and also the narrative that the prioritization narrative, whether that will resonate with the Brazilian audience or not. So I think those are very maybe more fundamental issues. Maybe a counterfactual is that if Trump was still in the office, but because, because of the domestic opposition to Brazil's President Bolsonaro to ban Huawei, he still could not do it because he was such a weak president. He did not have the authority to build the coalition around him that to really securitize China's technology and to take the step to keep Huawei out, to bar Huawei from the 5G network. 
And the first question was、uh, whether Brazil had this、uh, aspiration to grow indigenous technology and to require Chinese firms to partner with local、uh, companies that、uh, and also technology transfer. I think this is definitely one of the aspirations of Brazil as a country that tries to be an important player on the global stage and try to catch up with developed countries in terms of technology and economic development. So that's why we see that Huawei played very well. The strategy was to work with Sao Paulo State when. Bolsonaro was in office and was very anti-China, anti-Huawei. The circumvent or evade these constraints by working directly with the local government and the set up the 5G factory and the chain workers. I think this factor has nothing to do with Bolsonaro or the sanction against Huawei because. Brazil always have its protectionist policies that,、uh, in all other sectors,、uh, they require foreign investors to have a certain degree of the local production. For example, even flat screen TVs that imported from China that would give them preferential policy if they can produce locally. So that's why some Chinese manufacturers that set up factories in,、uh, I think it's in Manaus, that the industrial zone to produce and train the workers, and the certain degree of technology transfer as well. Thank you so much, Julie. Ladies and gentlemen. So once again, I would like to thank Dr. Zeng for a wonderful presentation. I think it has been illuminating for the audience, certainly for me. And I look forward to future collaborations with the Green School. So I, I think this has been a very useful exercise, certainly for us here in Asia, looking at great power competition from a different lens, from a different region. And I certainly look forward to future collaboration with the Green School. So once again, I would like to thank Professor Zeng and、you. also Professor Gong for being、uh, discussed. To those in Asia, a very good night, and to our friends in the US, please enjoy the rest of your day. Right. Till the next time. Bye.